0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to the latest episode of Note to Scene. This week we got news from Every Time I Die, All Time Low, Attack Attack, a radio rundown, and our deep dive on I Set My Friends on Fire, MySpace, and How They Predicted the Future. You can listen to the official Note to Scene radio show over at 94.3 The X in Colorado every Saturday night from 8 to 10 p.m. local time. If you want to check it out you're not in the area, you can download the station's app. Just search 94.3 The X in the app store and tune in this Saturday. As always, you can listen to the songs mentioned during this episode on the Note to Scene Spotify playlist. And if you have any comments, questions, or requests for deep dives, email me at scene at gmail.com. All right, let's get started. So every time I die, finally return to save 2020 with two new songs called Colossal Wreck and Desperate Measures. They both came out on Epitaph. Colossal Wreck is A-tier classic E-tid. Sleazy, Southern-tinged riffs that punch like a motherfucker, a much more leveled drum mix from Will Putney than on Low Teens, and Keith's vocals that literally haven't lost a single step after all these years. Desperate Pleasures is a bit of a new E.T.I.D. take. Keith throws in some manic, exaggerated cleans that we haven't really ever heard from him before, and it builds into a crescendo of chaos riffs and these crazy ADD screams. I swear, every lyric Keith writes could be a one-liner. The two songs are commentary on the current state of America and the world in general, and are kind of antithesis of each other. Colossal Wreck is the pessimistic side, and Desperate Pleasures is a little bit more of an optimistic take overall, but like I said, so many one-liners, like this one. Try having passion, try still believing that some good will happen, though nothing ever has and nothing ever will, because nothing ever can. Good lord, that's like a stab-twist-pull combo. I knew E.T.I.D. would come with heat, but I had no idea it was going to be this good. Both of these tracks are fantastic, and definitely recommended for fans of good music. In other news, All Time Low have released their remix to their alt-radio hit Monsters, which now features both Black Bear and Demi Lovato. In case anyone needs a reminder, Demi is an old-school scene kid. She said she's loved everyone from Job for a Cowboy to He is Legend to Maylene and the Sons of Disaster. Earlier this year, she released an emo version of her song I Love Me with Travis Barker. And then there's also the deep seen rumor that she and Alex Gaskarth had a fling way back in the day after Alex and his high school sweetheart, Lisa Ruoko, who is now his wife, were on a break. But all of that to say, she's been in the trenches for longer than most. She slays her part on this track. I'd honestly like it if they just took Black Bear out altogether and gave her half of it and made it a bit of a duet with Alex, but I know for the sake of charts, they gotta keep the song cemented as is. But two main doors Demi opens here are one, Top 40 Radio, and two, Pop Playlists. The song has already been added to over 50 top 40 stations around the country, I'll get to where it is in the radio rundown in a few minutes, but again, just like we've been talking with Architects Animals week after week, this is going to be a long slow burn if it's going to build any real momentum. If it does, we'll start seeing it solidify itself in probably late January, early February. As for streaming, it was instantly added to Pop Rising on Spotify, which is the gateway playlist to the biggest playlist on Spotify, Today's Top Hits. If you get on there, it's a game changer for your career. To my knowledge, All Time Low is the only non-breakout scene band to ever make it onto Pop Rising. 2020 was a comeback year for All Time Low, despite everything that happened in the world around them, but 2021 could change everything for them and I'm so excited to watch it unfold. In other new music news, Attack Attack released their first new song in eight years on Sunday called All My Life. It premiered on Sirius XM Octane and then hit streaming services at midnight. It's not the 2010 Crabcore throwback everyone wanted. It takes a lot of notes from recent Bring Me the Horizon and Falling in Reverse material, and even more specifically, Kingdom of Giants. It's straight, late, 2010's modern Lincoln Park ripoff core that every scene band ripped Bring Me the Horizon off of in order to try and get some radio traction because after 2015, the scene fell apart and bands that wanted to survive knew they had to cater to a different audience and needed radio play to do it. I think that's what's most disappointing about it, is we all expected it to be a true Crab core revival. I mean, there are two types of comebacks a band can do. A fan service comeback and a we-wanna-try-to-be-a-bigger-better-band comeback. I do think Attack, Attacks will be a little bit of both. I just don't get having this sound just being a carbon copy of what's going on right now and leading the comeback with it. There's no way Attack Attack becomes even a sliver of what they were back in the day. At their peak, they were a 20,000 first week band. That will never happen again. So I do think they will have some sort of generic 2010s metalcore moments, or at the very least, I have a strong hope. Okay, on to this week's radio rundown. So like I said, All Time Lows Monsters has been submitted to Top 40 Radio and has been getting quite a bit of plays out of the gate. It's currently sitting at number 43, so we're going to keep it super close eye on this. If it climbs high enough, All Time Low might have a Hot 100 charting on their hands here. The song is also still number one at Alt Radio, which makes that run 12 weeks. Demi might just help the band blow the top off this thing. Also at top 40, we have MGK and Black Bear keeping a steady pace, moving from 24 to 23, and creeping in on breaking the top 20 here. Over at Alternative Radio, we have IDK Howe continuing their rise to number three. I mean, there's a chance that All Time Low might get replaced by another scene band at number one on Alternative Radio in 2020. That in and of itself is nuts. MGK's Bloody Valentine drops to number six. And over at Rock Radio, I Prevail is still sitting at number three, trying to gain ground on ACDC and Foo Fighters. Ask Alexandria's They Don't Want What We Want holds steady at number 14, but is up 12% in plays. Bring Me The Horizon's Teardrops makes a big jump this week from 30 to 22. Again, this song has by far performed better and faster than Parasite Eve, so hopefully it can make it up higher on the chart for them. Architects Animals drops from 31 to 32, but it's still increase in plays, so that's what we're ultimately looking for. But all right. On to this week's deep dive. So, I Set My Friends On Fire, and I say this wholeheartedly, was one of the most underrated bands in the scene and still nobody wants to admit it. A majority of that comes from their influence. What they did with their Crank That cover and songs like Hardcore Two-Step predicted an entire mainstream movement that didn't come until seven years later. But as we do here on Note To Scene, let's start at the beginning. So before I set my friends on fire, there was a band called We Are The Cavalry. From what I've been able to find, there were a six piece with two vocalists, two guitarists, a bassist, and a drummer. I wasn't able to find the names of the other members, but Matt Mahana was one of the vocalists and Nabil Moo played guitar. I believe they only released five songs in total. They're pretty rough demos, but they honestly had a bit of Southern metalcore local band every time I die feel to them. Check out their song, SSL. (laughs) So after We Are The Calvary broke up, Matt and Nabil formed I Set My Friends On Fire in the fall of 2007. People have always assumed that they got their name from Aiden's song I Set My Friends On Fire, but thanks to Spin's old feature of where bands got their name from, I found out that that was pretty far from the case. Here's what Matt said. The name is based on lyrics from a song by one of our old bands called We Are The Cavalry. The song was, My Maserati Goes 185, and the lines were, The altitude is higher, we have something to set on fire, your face in flames. We thought it would be cool to keep the spirit from the old band and put it into our new band. And then later on, he talked about Aiden. Here's what he said, There's actually a band called Aiden that has a song called I Set My Friends On Fire, which we had no idea about when we named the band. I'm pretty pissed about that. That band sucks. Surprisingly enough, that comment has aged pretty well. For anyone interested, just go see what William Control has been up to. But anyways, the first song I Set My Friends on Fire ever release ended up being their biggest moment. It was their infamous cover of Soldier Boy's Crank That. The world had never heard anything like this before. It was a shoddy recreation of the song's original beat with ridiculous whiny fry screams of the rap over the top. It sounded so bad, but also kinda hit for some reason. And nobody had any idea why. Kinda like some of the shit that came out of the emo SoundCloud rap era in 2015 and 2016. But there was a time in late 2007, early 2008 where if you knew this, you were hot shit in Scene Kid circles. And as if the song wasn't over the top enough, the borderline deathcore breakdown at the end sealed the deal. Myspace actually deleted the band's profile three times because the song was getting so many streams, they thought they were using software to fake them. Even though the plays were actually real, I thought this was the first instance of even a mention of fake streams in history, but actually the first one I know of now is in 2003 when Bradley from Chiodos gamed Pure Volumes play counters and got the band to the website's front page, which eventually got them signed to Equal Vision because of it. But I Set My Friends On Fire weren't faking their streams and still had to start over multiple times. I actually found an interview that Nabil did with a local Miami News website in 2008 where he said they thought about just giving up after MySpace took their page down for the third time. Apparently the song was doing 50,000 plays a day and the site's moderators thought that was impossible. Could you imagine telling them what the internet would look like 10 years later? Here's what Nabil said about it. The thing that made me think this wasn't worth it is that the third time after we got deleted, someone made an exact replica of our page and even used our pictures. Matt's phone was off or something, so I wrote to the page and some kid pretending to be Matt wrote back saying he'd call me. Then Matt finally called me and was like, what's up? And it turns out those kids with the page were writing to everyone who said they loved us and saying these hurtful things. So, apparently, Nabil's older brother was an entertainment lawyer and threatened MySpace with quote-unquote strongly-worded letter to bring their page back. They had 5,000 friends when they did end up bringing it back, and that interview was about a year later, and they had 97,000 at that point. So, after they got their profile back for good this time, they put up three other songs. ASL, Beauty is in the Eyes of the Beer Holder, and Hardcore Two-Step. They were mostly proto screamo tracks with surprisingly massive hooks. I mean, make fun of this band all you want, even now in 2020, but damn it, they could write a hook back in the day. And I wanna highlight Hardcore Two-Step in particular here because it sounds so similar to a lot of the early heavy sector of the SoundCloud rap era. Here's what Hardcore Two-Step sounded like. Up your Replace your left foot with right. Just like a- you yes. you be too, step all yeah. You're You're right. And here's what xxx Tentacion's caution sounded like <laughs> X posted that as a snippet on his SoundCloud in 2015, so seven years later, and that snippet clip has over 12 million plays. It wasn't even a full song. Obviously there are differences here, but I'm trying to tie together the blatant correlation between the structure of these eras, and Ismphoff was doing it more than half a decade before any of that movement even started. But so all of this hype quickly caught the attention of labels and they ended up signing the epitaph in early 2008. The first show they ever booked was actually Bamboozle in the spring of 2008, but in order to prepare for that, they played a local show in Florida, which was actually their first official show. But once their Bamboozle set rolled around, they had no idea what to expect, especially because they ended up playing during Snoop Dogg, Jimmy Eat World, and the now former MySpace celebrity, Jeffree Star. But according to that local Miami report, they drew around 2,000 kids that night. And you know, wanna know the craziest part? I found videos from that set on YouTube everything but the vocals and lead guitar was backtracked. They didn't even have a drummer. They closed with Crank That and minus the breakdown, it was literally just Matt and Nabil on mics yelling over the beat. Has anyone been to a hip hop show during the SoundCloud rap era? It's literally the same thing. From Lil Peep to I saw a show in 2019 with two trap metal kids named Josiah and Nascar Aloe. They just get up on stage, plug a MacBook in, press play, and start yelling over a beat, and I Set My Friends On Fire We're doing the exact same thing over a decade ago. It literally blows my mind how much this band is actually a forefather to a lot of movements that happened long after they became irrelevant. But after the Bamboozle gig, they went to Georgia to record their first album with none other than from first to last guitarist Travis Richter. I can't find much information on the recording process or what went down in the studio, but Travis working with I Set My Friends on Fire makes so much sense and you can hear his influence all over this album. The band released their debut full-length You Can't Spell Slaughter Without Laughter through Epitaph on October 7th, 2008. As you can imagine, critics hated this thing. Even Alt Press took a shit on it, giving it a half-star, saying it failed because there wasn't one memorable moment. It's just so funny because most critics took a shit on SoundCloud rap when it started, too. I absolutely think bad music exists. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows that. But critics and critic culture tends to be this holier-than-thou complex where anything that doesn't fit into their box of talent isn't good. And if you try to parody anything, which I Set My Friends on Fire did a lot, they turn their nose up at that instantly. They think art shouldn't be a joke and it should be taken seriously at all times. And then you're just left with douchebag pitchfork fodder, which to me is by far the worst community in this music industry. Now, I absolutely have my soapbox moments, and this is probably one of them, but I always try to give art, serious or not, a chance. There was a reason Lil Pump's Gucci gang was a smash hit, and even though I found most of Pump's shit pretty unlistenable, I still tried to understand it. And before everyone goes, people are dumb and like dumb things, I promise you it's way deeper than that. I Set My Friends On Fire was never supposed to be taken seriously, so if you go into it trying to take it seriously, you've already missed the point. So, Slaughter didn't sell enough to debut on the top 200, but it was absolutely a Myspace hit. And it felt like as long as they made the right tour moves, they can make a pretty decent first week splash with their next album. To me, the structure of Things That Rhyme With Orange has the bare bones math behind any good post-hardcore song. That hook will still randomly get stuck in my head to this day. And it didn't matter that their lyrics didn't make sense half the time, the math was just that right the arpeggio synths, simple chords, gang vocal melodies, and screams. It's just a template for basic but solid post-hardcore. Okay, so the album is out, and not even two months later they were already releasing more new music, but this time it was a genius move, releasing it in partnership with the OG YouTubers Smosh. So we are really digging up a ton of internet history on this episode here. Okay, so Smosh basically showed the world, they were kind of the originators, that you can make money and good money at that off YouTube videos. It has certainly fallen from its heights, but at three different points in history, the Smosh channel was the most subscribed channel on all of YouTube. In November of 2008, I Set My Friends On Fire teamed up with them to release a collab song called Sex Ed Rocks. They made a music video for it too, which according to a press release I found from Epitaph that was sent out after the video dropped, had 778,000 views in the first three days, and that was enough to make it the number one video on YouTube at the time. I'm assuming that stat was taken from an early iteration of YouTube's trending chart, but after this, they went on, on multiple tours. But the documentation on a lot of those runs were very poorly preserved thanks to Myspace becoming just a black hole of lost information. What I have been able to find, thanks to Lamgo, yet again, is in the spring of 2009, they went out on a tour opening for Drop Dead Gorgeous alongside Alasana, Fear Before, and With Grace We Fall. That summer, they did what any scene band with hype should do, spend the entire summer on warp Tour. I believe when they started touring in 2009 is when from first to last drummer Chris Lent officially joined the band. So live, they were a three piece at this point. I've dug up quite a few classic live videos from this era of the band that I'm going to be tweeting out on the note to scene account over the next week, so if you want to check out some scene history, be sure to follow on there. I actually found one of them playing Warped that summer, and Caleb Shomo from Attack Attack, now Beartooth, is standing behind them on the stage the entire time. It's fitting because Attack Attack took Ismfoth out on their headliner that fall with Miss May I, Our Last Night, and The Color Morale. At that point, Attack Attack was still on the Someday Came Suddenly cycle, so even they were playing like 400 and 500 cap venues. Also in the fall of 2009, they released their second and final collab song with Smosh called Four Years Foreplay," And I don't give a shit how laughable this song is. That hook is ridiculous. So simple, yet so damn catchy. Check it out. but after that, in early 2010, the band headed into the studio to record their second full-length album, and this would end up already being the beginning of the downfall of I Set My Friends on Fire. Again, the documentation on all of this is awful, and that's partially because the band never made any formal announcements, But from what I understand, Nabil and Matt wrote and recorded an entire second album near the beginning of 2010 and then finished it after re-entering the studio a second time at the beginning of that summer. I can't figure out who produced that original album, but I would assume it was Travis from From First to Last because he did Slaughter and then ended up doing the official second Ism record. But so this original second album Nabil and Matt made, Epitaph hated it. Apparently, they rejected the entire thing, because it was too serious and didn't have enough of the hip-hop elements that Slaughter had. And that came after Nabil was feeling a bunch of stress to follow up Slaughter, and that was causing tension between him and Matt. You see, the writing dynamic of the band was that Nabil wrote all of the music, and Matt just wrote the lyrics. But after the tension and stress from creating the original album, and then Epitaph rejecting it, Nabil quit the band. All of this finally came out in an interview Matt did with Dead Press in 2018. He gave a massive quote telling the entire story of the truth behind what happened with the second I Set My Friends on Fire album. Here's what he said. Basically, the label heard it and said, this isn't like the first album at all. It's more mature. They wanted more hip hop. But I wasn't writing the music at the time, but I knew what they wanted. I said, I know what you want, but I can't write yet. Nabil wrote all of the music. He would go into his room for like two weeks and write and more power to him because I know how it is to write now and I can't write with anyone around me. So I knew what he felt at the time. At that time, I was confused and was like, why the hell would he go into a room by himself and write and not let me be part of the music? But then I realized, sometimes when I explain things, it's really out there. I don't know why, I just explain things really bizarrely. So imagine someone like me trying to explain a part to someone who plays guitar, and I know nothing about music theory or anything like that. It probably gets really annoying after a while. I don't know, it was weird, because on the first album, I would just hum him some riffs and stuff like that, and he would play them, and boom, we'd have a written song. I don't know why he wanted to change the approach to writing on the second one. I think it was just stress and pressure, to be honest with you, because we were deeper in the game. And once you release a first album, there's more pressure for the second one to be better. So he wrote and wrote, and then he would come back into the studio and show me a song, and my selfish ass would hear the song and be like, "Mm, I don't like it. I was just being honest, but we were also running out of time, so he'd get really frustrated and go back and write and then come back with something else. I didn't want to tell him that stuff sucked again, but there were moments where the music was really good and I did what I had to do over the music with my vocals because I had no control over the music. And so when Epitaph heard it, they even dissed me. They were like, eh, your voice sounds like the guy from 311. I was like, what, what are you talking about? Obviously, Nabil was super stressed already with writing the album, and if someone rejects the whole album, he's going to be like, fuck this shit, and so he left. When that was done, basically Epitaph Records wanted to close the book right then and there, and I was like, no, please give me one more chance. I'll write it with Travis from From First to Last and a few other dudes. So I rewrote Astral Rejection, the one that actually came out, named it the same thing, reused a lot of old lyrics, and made a new album that sounded a little bit more like Us. That doesn't mean that I don't think that what we originally wrote was kind of cool, especially for the time. I go back and listen to it now and again, and I'm like, damn, this shit actually isn't that bad. I can't believe we even thought of some of this shit. That's basically what happened. That's the whole story of Astral Rejection. So... Epitaph did finally end up releasing the original version of the album in 2019. It's on all streaming services right now. It is pretty much completely different than what the final version of Astral became. I honestly revisit it quite often. The full thing leaked on YouTube a couple years ago, and I would put on Cantaloupe the Antelope and Reborfin all the time. Check out this hook on Cantaloupe. But so Matt recorded the final version of Astral with Chris and Travis from From First to Last, as well as Andrew Tapley and Nathan Blazdel. The record was originally supposed to come out on June 22nd, 2010, but ended up officially coming out on June 21st, 2011. And by then, a ton of the band's hype was gone. Matt had actually spent the last summer on the first Scream It Like You Mean It tour after Epitaph rejected the original version of the album. He was on it alongside Silverstein, Emery, Dance Gavin Dance, Skye's Airplane, and Close to Home. I mean, damn, there are so many intersecting timelines right there. But as far as I can tell, Astral Rejection never broke the top 200. So despite the overnight hype the band had at one point, they never actually made very much commercial ground because as soon as it started, it was pretty much over. After this, Matt implemented a bit more of a solid touring lineup that had a few shakeups during Astral's brief cycle. They spent the summer of 2011 on Warp Tour in support of the album, and then in the spring of 2012, they went out on a headliner with A Lot Like Birds, Greeley Estates, and A Bullet for Pretty Boy. They were playing super small caps, a couple hundred tops, then the band pretty much went silent soon after that. There was never a breakup post or even a hiatus post. Matt shared some sporadic songs over the next few years that were really experimental and lo-fi. Like he said during that Dead Press interview, he was literally just learning how to write music. They started touring again in 2015 and they actually played a ton of shows all over the world over the next few years after that. Matt had announced that a new album called Caterpillar Sex would be the official third I Set My Friends On Fire album. It still hasn't dropped to this day. They did sign to Tragic Hero in 2016, and that seemed to be a pretty big shit show. According to Matt, there were only signed to them for about four months. They've dropped multiple random tracks over the last three years to Spotify. Most recently, they put up a four-song EP called Online Now, Three of the tracks are basically either lo-fi, emo, Soundcloud rap shit, or Myspace bedroom pop, depending on who you ask, and the other song was an acoustic version of Things That Rhyme With Orange with Lil Lotus on vocals. So, despite teasing a lot of activity in 2019, they didn't do a whole lot, and then 2020 shut down everything. So, how do you tie a bow on I Set My Friends On Fire? It's a wild tale of overnight success with a small set of art that ultimately predicted the future in more ways than one with both the SoundCloud era and YouTuber crossovers. All with its fair share of problematic lyrics, label pressure, and internal combustion that left a literal kid that didn't even know how to write music to pick up the pieces. It would have been so interesting to see what I Set My Friends on Fire would have turned into if Nabil stayed and Epitaph would have let them release the original version of Astral with a full push. But despite going viral multiple times online, we never saw the full commercial potential of I Set My Friends on Fire. So go spin Slaughter and pour one out for another scene story of what was, but also what could have been. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at notetoseen at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon.